Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Squash uh, podcast. Today on episode uh, 20, we have a squash writer, squash historian, especially on the uh, the North American side of things, uh, and hardball and doubles in particular, Rob Dinnerman on the podcast today. Uh, Rob has written uh, several books, uh, one which is uh, almost uh, ready to be published uh, on the on uh, the history of Princeton squash. Uh, he released uh, and published the history of Harvard squash back in 2015. Uh, he has a fascinating book on uh, life as a student at Phillips Exeter uh, uh, Prep School, uh, which is called Chasing the Lion. And uh, we talk a little bit uh, about some of the, uh, the great stories and uh, memories he has of, uh, as a student there. Um, and also, uh, we talk about a lot of, uh, of really good squash uh, stories. Rob has a wealth of knowledge. He's forgotten more than I'll uh, ever know in terms of um, squash, uh, especially on the North American side, but just squash uh, facts and squash history in general. So uh, really excited to have Rob uh, on for ever episode 20. Uh, I've always followed his writing uh, since way back uh, in the, uh, the squash talk days, uh, back in the early uh, 2000s, the late uh, 1990s. Um, now, just before we get started, uh, first of all, congratulations to all the winners uh, at the Commonwealth Games. Joelle King on the women's side, silver medal to Sarah Jane Perry and Tessney Evans, the bronze. And on the men's, James Wilstrup, what a match he played to win the gold. Paul Cole played brilliantly uh, leading up to the finals for the silver. And Nafizwan Adnan uh, doing well to, to, uh, to pull the bronze as well. Uh, there was a lot of debate there on the women's final uh, on Facebook, uh, which was interesting to see. Uh, I personally, I thought uh, at eight all, I think it was eight all, uh, Sarah Jane Perry got sort of um, hard done by by a, a, a no let call. But uh, I'm not sure what what the right call would have been. But uh, I think most of uh, Facebook, I'd say about 60 percent of people who commented on it, uh, felt that it was the right decision. Um, I'm not too sure about that, but uh, I wasn't. I didn't see it up close. So uh, for anyone who had a good view of it, maybe it, maybe she did have enough room to play the ball. To me, it looked like uh, she didn't have much of a backswing there. She didn't try to uh, to accentuate her backswing, which could have uh, possibly gotten her what she uh, was trying to uh, get, which was a let. Or I think maybe some people felt she wanted a stroke there. But um, at any rate, uh, you move on when a call is made, and uh, Joelle did, and she won the gold there, and congrats. Uh, and Sarah Jane as well played really well to come back from two love down and uh, just didn't have it there in the final few points uh, to pull it off. And uh, James Wilstrup, what more can you say? Uh, masterclass performance in the final. Uh, Paul Cole. Uh, played really well leading up to the final, but James was just too precise uh, with all elements of his game, and he was moving really well, and uh, he had uh, been there twice before, and he really wanted this one. So uh, congratulations, uh, James, congratulations, Joel, and congratulations to uh, all the other medalists there. So uh, great squash at the Commonwealth Games, and you would think that that would be enough to uh, sway the, the Olympics uh, the Olympic Games to bring squash into the fray. So uh, uh, what a what a great uh, display of squash that was. So anyways, now uh, let's move on. Uh, episode 20 with Rob Dinnerman. Enjoy the history lesson, everyone. About, uh, the first decade of the 2000s when I did quite a bit of writing for the squashtalk.com site. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's how I got to know you. And I really enjoyed, uh, I used to read actually a I, I taught at a university in um, in Seoul at the time. I used to read your stuff to uh, some of the literature uh, professors in, at the college, and they they really enjoyed it, <laughs> despite not knowing anything about squash. But uh. uh-huh. okay, <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, Jerry, that's that's, yep. that's a good point. That's a good point you're raising in the sense that when I write, when I do these write-ups. Um, I'm very aware that um, that basically people who weren't at the match, um, didn't see anything, they're sort of counting on me to not only set, you know accurately describe who won and who lost, but to sort of try to paint enough of a picture of how the match actually went so that even though they didn't see a single point, they kind of can visualize how the match went. I mean, I view that as being as much a part of the responsibility of writing a match as, as just, you know, 
giving the nuts and bolts. I want them to feel a little bit like they were there when they read what I write about it about a match. Yeah, that makes. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense now too. I mean, that that's how I read your your writing. Uh, it just, it felt like you know I was there, and you you'd describe a rally, not in one sentence, but uh, in a series of sentences or even a paragraph. So uh, it, it was really a, a joy to read. I I still read your stuff now, even though I'm not as connected with the uh, the hardball uh, scene as I was. But um, just let me give a little bit of a brief bio for everyone who's listening. Uh, we're on the show today with, uh, this is episode 19, if I'm not mistaken, with uh, a man who's probably forgotten more about squash than I'll ever remember, uh, Rob Dinnerman. Uh, he's a squash writer, a uh, former squash professional. I think he still plays a little bit on the, uh, the double circuit, the pro double circuit. Um, he has uh, written a history of... Uh, of Harvard Squash, which was released in 2015, currently working on history of Princeton Squash, and uh, also has a Chasing the Lion, uh, an unresolved journey through Phillips Exeter Academy, amongst other hardball squash write-ups over the past 20, 30 years. Rob, thank you so much for coming on. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great. Now, uh, let's just, uh, I know currently your, your current project uh is your your history of uh, princeton squash how's that going for you at the moment and what stage are you in in the uh the writing process the manuscript is uh is now com- is, has been completed uh for less actually about two months ago um i spent i i actually spent um in the harvard book i spent about two years on it the Princeton book I was able to get done in about one year. And I think it was just that I kind of learned enough while doing the Harvard book that I was sort of more efficient with the Princeton book, which is actually, the manuscript's actually longer. Um, we're, work, we're on the production phase right now, um, edits, uh, photo selection, captions, layout, that kind of thing. Uh, the book will really probably be ready by the end of this spring, but we're releasing it uh, at, uh, at Jadwin Gymnasium in Princeton, where their squash courts are. Uh, at a big party in October, um, so that that event can double as a as the book release and also a bit of a kickoff to the Princeton 20, uh, 2018-19 squash season. Um, they did something similar at Harvard. The Harvard book was ready by the early summer of 2015, but they also released it at, at a big party at, at, at the Mer Center, which is Harvard squash facility, in October of 2015. So, the feeling is that having it, you know, right on the eve of, of an upcoming season makes more sense in terms of just people are thinking about squash and more interested in them than if we were to release it in the spring, you know, when the colleges are off on vacation, that kind of thing. But the actual manuscript is now done. And uh, as I said, we're in the production phase. And, and I'm, uh, for what it's worth, I've got a very good feeling about, you know, how what the final product's going to be like. I've had tremendous support from the uh, from some of the Princeton people, um, and that's been a big uh, help as well. So, anyway, the, the manuscript's done, and uh, it'll be released in October. That's great. I get, yeah, it, it sort of makes sense to uh, to kick it off at the uh, the beginning of the season, uh, bringing out everyone, uh, some of the old old, old squash people uh, at Princeton and at Harvard, and that that's a good way also to sort of re uh, sort of raise the profile of uh, of the, the current uh, squash team. Uh, uh, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And at the event at Harvard, uh, first of all, there were uh, Harvard squash alums uh, from all over the world who were there, India, everywhere. And secondly, um, there were um, uh, players as far back as the early 1950s who played at Harvard then who who uh, showed up uh, that night. Um, so, we, uh, you know, going all the way from that far back to people who were on the current Harvard team. So, it was really a kind of gathering of the tribe um, <laughs> at Harvard that was really a momentous occasion. And, and a lot of um, the more recent alums were really thrilled to see, you know, these people in their 80s who they read about and the tradition of which had been passed down to them while they were playing. And I think it was good for the old timers, too, to sort of get it sort of gave them a chance to have their own reunion and to, you know, to get to see each other again and to think back on matches that, you know, at that point, they'd played 60 years ago. So it was, um, it was an extraordinarily 
uh, impactful evening for everybody, I think. And I know that the Princeton people are very much planning to, to replicate that at least, um, you know, in, uh, in six or seven months. I guess, uh, I'm not sure, I guess you would know this, but uh, if you were to go to Harvard, uh, the Harvard squash facility, would, there, would the names of these, uh, the older generation players that you mentioned, the guys from the 50s and 60s, are their names visible anywhere around the courts? Oh, absolutely. They have, uh, they have um, the team photos to begin with from, you know, going back to the beginning of Harvard squash, which, which began in the early 1920s. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, that, that's absolutely uh, th- you know those names are there and and you know until more until somewhat recently you know they have a tradition of having some of their people from the old times come and and watch some of their important matches. Um, the uh, the best thing about doing this Princeton uh, book you know not that long after the Harvard one uh, is that um, uh, uh, in the 1970s there was a baseball writer named Peter Goldenbach, who wrote a book called Yankee Dynasty, which focused on the period from 1949 through 64, when the Yankees were in, won 14 pennants in those 16 years. Yeah. And uh, six times in a 10-year period, those Yankee teams played against the Brooklyn Dodgers in the World Series. And of course, that was quite a, covered very thoroughly in the book. A few years later, Goldenbach wrote a book called Bums, which was a chronicle of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And it was fascinating to see of covering the same period of time. And it was fascinating to see the different perspectives with which the, the players on those two t- teams viewed the same games. They, they, were, they viewed them through different prisms. And I remember reading both books at, at the time and thinking, what a, you know, what a great project that Goldenbach did and what a thrill it would be for me to do something similar someday. Mm. And now 40 years later, having written the Harvard book and Harvard and Princeton had a tremendous squash rivalry. There were yeah. years in which their dual meets hinged on a single point or two. Um, I wrote that, and now I'm getting to do pretty much what Peter Goldenbach did in baseball. I, was, I got to interview the Princeton players who played in the same matches that I'd written about when I wrote the Harvard book. And it was just as exciting an experience as I envisioned, you know, back when I read the, the two baseball books 40 years ago. The, the same matches are viewed by the players from the two different teams in very, very different prisms. Um, and it really was, uh, it was quite an experience for me to get to hear both of them and, uh, and to you know, write about both of them and compare those two perspectives. So that's part of why the Princeton book um, is something that I've enjoyed doing as much as I have. That's awesome. Uh, now, if, if someone wanted to, uh, are these available online? Uh, the, the History of Harvard book, I believe, is. Well, there, uh, there are. Uh, online in the sense that um, uh, there's a photo of the Harvard book on dailysquashreport.com, the website I've been writing for since 2011. And if somebody clicks on that photo on the home page, there are instructions that appear as to how it can be ordered. It is not carried by Amazon or, or any other bookstores like that. There were uh, initially, I think, only about two or 300 copies made. They sold out so fast that there have been additional runs. But the Harvard squash people and their coach Mike Way have are in possession of the of the of the Harvard books that are, are still in print right now, and so one has to order it uh, that way. I suspect the print that people will be doing something similar. The, the books are not at bookstores or on Amazon right. or anything like that. Okay, so just go to dailysquashreport.com. Uh, that's a, a Ted um, Ted Gross. Is that right? Gross is the publisher yeah. of that site. Um, he and I sort of co-founded it, as I say, in 2011. Uh, the com site had kind of run its course uh, by then. Ron Beck did a, a great job on that for about a decade or so, but yeah. um, he, you know, he has subsequently closed the site down. And uh, Ted, it was really Ted's brainchild. He felt that, you know, that there should be a squash website, an American squash website for um, to cover news from America and from all over the world. But um, he felt that that there should be a site, and uh, and uh, with Squash Talk no longer running, um, he felt Ron had set a great example, and he then you know started the uh, the DailySquashReport.com site. Uh, he does an amazing job with that. He has usually eight to ten postings uh, every every night, which people of course read the following morning. Yeah, and um, and he's got some advertisers. Uh, Ted really um, he has you know a whole bunch of. Uh, 
um, subsides for jobs and juniors and college squash, et cetera. You know, he's got it itemized very well on the homepage. And, and I think Ted really does an amazing job with that. He, by the way, played on the WPSA Pro Hardball Tour during the 1980s. Okay. Uh, so he was. So and, and you was guys a have player. a lot in common, you, Ted, uh, and Ron Beck. Uh, we all played on the on the WPSA Hardball Tour, which was a very, uh, the composition of that tour was very eclectic. Yeah. There were people from Ivy League colleges. There were people from, you know, the Khan clan that dominated the sport for several decades. Um, Clive Caldwell? Um, say again? Clive Caldwell, didn't he play on that Clive tour? Was the was uh, the one who really got that site uh, that got that tour started in the early 1980s, uh, and he was um, he was the president of the of the association for quite some time and a very a very good administrative figure. Um, the real uh, the most important initial player on that on that tour was Sharif Khan, who yeah. at the time was um, really dominating the sport and and. Uh, but the, but all through the 70s, when he was playing his best squash, uh, there was no really organized, you know, full official tour. Um, and uh, and when that tour began in the early 80s, there was a there was a great run of of a number of years. The tour went into the early 90s, but the best time for that tour was uh, during most of the 1980s. And it had gotten big enough that players from overseas were coming over. Um, and Jahangir Khan, who at the time was the World and British Open champion in the softball game, played for three years, played, a, played probably about four or five of the top events on the hardball tour for about three years or so. And it was, uh, it was always very exciting when he was, uh, when he was on the prowl in, uh, in the North American <laughs> yeah. hardball I, No, I, I do remember that as a, as a young junior watching those matches. They were, they were uh, broadcast in a lot of... Uh, they, they got a lot of TV coverage. I, I, I That's do. right. I think CTV, so, which I believe was the sort of Canadian equivalent of ESPN, um, was great at covering the events in, in Canada, especially the ones in Toronto, um, which, um, which, is, which was sort of the hub. Toronto was where the headquarters of the WPSA was. Clive was there. Sharif was based there. Yeah. Many of the top players like Gordy Anderson and Aziz Khan and, and some of the others were in Toronto. And Toronto was always um, the city, Toronto and, and New York, were always the cities that um, had the most and the best of the of this of the events on that tour. Yeah, and Sharif was such a such a personality. I mean, you couldn't you could even tell just by watching him play his smile, his uh, his dynamic approach to the game. That that certainly helped uh, TV ratings. I think absolutely. Not only was he not only was he a great player, and not only was the Khan family tradition a well known one, uh, but he also was a was as you say a dynamic player there was a charisma in the way he played a sort of uh, his facial expressions he had these big sort of eyes that would bug out of his head sometimes when he was <laughs> focused on the ball um he played with a lot of flash and um and that uh, definitely added to the entertainment value absolutely you know now i'm just uh just wondering uh the hardball singles uh days uh, just seems to me maybe i'm wrong but they 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 don't real they're not there anymore but doubles seem to be thriving is it just is that just a matter of there there's only room for one singles game or am i quite sure but you know that people have asked me you know because the hardball game was the game in the united states and uh the only game and as i say the hardball tour at one for a brief moment in time was at a stage where the softball players were coming over and some of them, you know, Jahangir was the best player in the world at, at both games, but some of the softball players did not, didn't do nearly as well as they assumed they would when they came over. Um, uh, and um, I lived through all of it. I started playing in the early seventies when just, I was at the playing at the time when hardball was at its peak. And even though I lived through all of it, when people ask me what happened with hardball, I'm, I don't even know for sure what happened, um, at least in terms of the stage. Uh, softball was played, first of all, only on American courts, which are two and a half feet narrower than a softball court. There were only Amer- right. North American courts. In, I mean, in I, I grew up playing uh, softball on a hardball court, strangely. Okay, right. And that's, what, <laughs> and that's not nearly as good a game as softball is on a softball court. No. Um, it just it, it just was sort of almost insidious the way softball was just played sort of during the summer as a as a break from hardball because the courts were warm and the, that ball stayed up better, um, uh, and um, 
and just slowly it started just making inroads. And, and you're right, for quite a few years now, it's at a stage where hardball essentially has disappeared. They still have a couple of hardball events. There still are a couple of hardball courts. Most of the courts, the hardball courts have since, since been converted to softball. The juniors and the colleges uh, switched from hardball to softball in the early 1990s. And that really was the death knell for hardball mm. because uh, those people coming out of college were coming out of college having played softball, not hardball. Well, I guess and like when hard- you grew up, uh, you would have been playing hardball, for example, at Phillips Exeter or, or at, the, at university. And now that softball has taken over, even in, in those venues, maybe, like you said. Absolutely. It is, in uh, fact, softball took over in those venues first. And when those when those players when those students graduated, they were coming into this you know and got jobs in the city or whatever. They they were coming from having played softball. There has not no I think probably the very early 1990s was the last time that juniors were playing hardball in the U.S. And you know that was almost 30 years ago by now. So yeah, the hardball game, in my view, tragically has really disappeared, and that's why many of us who were hardball players who either were unwilling or unable to make the considerable adjustment to softball, instead moved to doubles, uh, which is played with a hardball. It's a much bigger court, and of course there are four people playing instead of two. Uh, and it's different from, uh, from hardball, but you're still, you're still playing with the hardball. And um, it's doubles, which was really just sort of an afterthought for during most of the time that hardball singles was so prominent, is now a much bigger game, in oh, yeah. the, especially in North America, than, uh, than it ever was. And there now is a pro hardball doubles tour. Yeah. Um, you know, well, you get a, you've got a lot of guys who sort of uh, tried their, you know, tried the softball tour and did pretty well, but then they moved to hardball. Guys like Victor Berg, Damian uh, Mudge, uh, and a, I think a bunch of other guys there too. Paul Price for a little while. Um, and they found hardball uh, and really enjoyed it. Right. They're playing hardball doubles, though, not hardball Hardball singles. doubles, yeah. Yeah, hardball singles is gone. Uh, uh-huh. But you're absolutely right. A lot of the uh, – Chris Walker was a, was a finalist in the British Open in 2001. He's, he, he had a very good run on the, on the doubles tour. A lot of the softball guys, uh, particularly um, when, they're, when they're, their prime with the softball game uh, has run out, um, have switched to doubles and are, and are uh, very, very good doubles players. And it took yeah. them each of them a little while to learn the game because the balls act so differently. Uh, but, um, but you're absolutely right. Uh, most, of the top, uh, most of the top players on the SDA Pro Hardballs Tour were originally softball singles players. Right. Now, I remember uh, way back when I was in university, I played a guy by the name of Chris Duratney. You might know him from the hardball mm-hmm. scene. And I yeah, ended, up, ended up playing him in a, in a tournament, in a softball tournament. And I hadn't played him before. And he, he played like a hardball player, just crushing the ball. Uh, that's all he, all he did. And it took me a couple of games to, uh, to get used to it. But uh, he, he was a hardball player by, uh, uh, from the beginning, I think. Absolutely. And Chris Duratney, uh, in 1981, won the world, uh, won the WPSA, which is the World Pro Squash Association Junior Championship. And in 1985, he won the uh, U.S. Intercollegiate Singles Championship. Um, okay. Uh, so he would, uh, and, and he played a bit on the Pro Tour. And that he might have been his brother, Paul. Maybe Paul. Maybe that was Paul, his brother. Uh, I played as maybe his younger brother, Chris. I'm sorry. Okay, no. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're, Paul, was the, Paul did the things I just mentioned. Chris yeah. uh, was, was uh, I'm sure, was a, was a good formidable player. He, I don't know if he did this in singles, but in the, he played a bit on the pro doubles tour. He yeah. had a two-handed backhand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> two-handed backhand. I remember that. But, yeah, um, but he, could hit, he could hit hard, though. He was hitting Even it hard. The, oh, yeah. Yeah, it, no, like I said, it, he he played that way on the on the softball uh, court, and, and it was a, it took a while to adjust. But now, getting back to uh, sort of the the hardball, just for a little bit, you uh, I I read somewhere that you considered, and it's probably uh, it goes without question, I guess, if you followed hardball at all, Mark Talbot as being the, the goat uh, of the hardball uh, of hardball squash history. Do you still uh, feel that way, uh, Rob? The greatest player of all time, is that what you mean by GOAT? Yeah, the GOAT, yes. Okay. Greatest player um, of all time, greatest of all time. 
Okay, I, I'm, I mean, I, I'm not sure in what context I wrote that. I mean, Mark certainly, statistically, you know, he happened, when Sharif was the best player in, you know, in the game in the, in the 60s, essentially, and, and, and through the 70s, uh, there was not, there, was, there were only four or five events a year, um, and he would win almost all of them. Uh, Mark came, entered the tour in 1980, right when that WPSA tour was becoming a real tour. Um, his first season, there were 20 tournaments that year. Uh, you know, that's three or four years worth of tournaments during the time when Sharif was the best player. So Mark played in many, many more tournaments. It was playing at a time when there are many more tournaments to play in than Sharif did. And Mark won more tournaments than anybody else. You know, Sharif might have won as many tournaments as Mark did if Sharif was playing at his best at a time when there were that many events on the tour. Yeah. Um, Mark, in terms of his longevity, he was, you know, the, the number one player essentially on that tour for about a dozen years, for over a dozen years. Yeah. Uh, in terms of does volume, the number of events won uh, has the highest numbers of anybody for sure. Um, uh, whether he played as well as Sharif did when Sharif was at his best, I'm not sure if he, when, uh, he only beat Jahangir Khan once, and they played, I think, 11 times uh, during only those three years. Only beat him once on the hardball court. That's right. Okay. So, I mean, I personally think the greatest sort of singles all around single player of all time, in my view, is Jahangir Khan, because he won 10 straight British Opens uh, from 1982 to 91. And uh, the, 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 uh, the three years he played hardball, he was the best player on the hardball tour as well. Um, there was one two-week period in which he won the British Open, and the night, the day after the final, after beating uh, Chris Dittmar in the final in 1985, he was on a Concord to New York City. That night, he was playing in the first round of the North American Open, the most important tournament on the hardball circuit. He won the North American Open. So in one week's time, he won the finals of both the top softball event and the top hardball event. Uh, you know, in that five or six day stretch, having, you know, beaten the best players in each of those two disciplines, you know, during that time span and having flown all the way from Europe to New York in the interim. That's incredible. He, uh, right. that, in my mind, that's the most impressive individual two you know, two discipline achievement uh, in the history of squash. Oh, I, I'd, I'd have to agree with you on that one. Is it just, uh, would you say, because of his style of play, like he, even uh, on the softball court, he was out there, he, he played with such pressure. It was all pressure, lots of pace. I guess that would have easily translated into a, a decent hardball game without much uh, adjustment. Yes, but there were, you know, the, the angles are different. Um, uh, you know, there were, that was still quite an adjustment he had to make. Um, and also he was not, unlike Sharif, he didn't, at least in the hardball, he didn't play with, as much flash, it was more just a case of extraordinarily consistent execution of, of the fundamentals of the game. He you know, right. had his footwork before each swing was just immaculate. He saw the ball early. He prepared well. He had a number of options at, you know, at his disposal. He just out-executed uh, everybody you know, in, both, in both forms of the sport uh, during that period of time. One other thing I want to say about Jahangir, um, there's nobody who respects what Jahangir did more than I did. I actually had the honor of being his first round opponent in the 1985 WPSA championship. <laughs> How was that? <laughs> I actually got one game into a tiebreaker. Um, okay. Uh, and, you know, he certainly dominated the last game. And as I said, never looked back. He won that tournament. He beat Mark in the final. Um, uh, the, there is, there's sort of the, the word is that he had, that he was undefeated for the five year period between 1981 and 1986. Um, and he did win all the British Open. He, he did, he did, he did not, he did go undefeated during all that time, uh, in the international softball game. Well, didn't he, didn't he have that some was, sort of like, it was like a 500 game winning streak or something? Something like the, the, crazy, the, we never really documented all, but the, the number that's thrown around is 555. Right. Um, I think that might be just because it's three digits, three of the same digits in a row. Uh, I'd like to see that on an actual list sometime. But in any event, um, during that period that we're talking about, from 1981 to 1986, uh, that was when he was also playing on the hardball circuit. And he did lose twice in tournaments on the WPSA Tour. He lost um, in the finals of the Canadian Open in 84, 
and he, uh, in the spring, and he lost to Mark Talbot. The one time Mark beat him in the finals of the Boston Open in the fall of 1984. Who beat and him in the uh, the previous one? Say again. Who who defeated him in the first one that you had mentioned? His first loss of the in, two. Uh, what um, as I, what happened? As I say, was Mario Sanchez beat him in the semis of the Canadian Pro in the spring? Oh, Sanchez, yeah, yeah, okay. He Mark was good Tal too. Beat him, Mark Tal beat him in the final the following fall, 1816 in the fifth, in the, in the, in the final of the Boston Open. Uh, Jahangir was 10 and 1 against Mark, and that was the one time Mark won. So it is therefore not the case that Jahangir won, uh, was undefeated for five and a half years. Right. He, he was undefeated in the softball game during that time, but he did lose twice in pro tournaments that he entered and that he trained for and that he played the best he could when he was in those forays onto the hardball tour. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, you, you can't take anything away from him, but still you, you got to look into that, that number 555. Five, five. Uh, right, it's just not accurate. Yeah. You know, he didn't win that many straight matches. He lost <laughs> twice during the interim. Yeah, that's a nice number though. It's a nice number, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, we've got the no obviously we just talked about it uh, hardball is now focused on the doubles and we've got some guys uh there that have dominated uh over the last few years damian mudge in particular currently the number one uh uh player tied for number one i guess uh on the hardball tour and for a number of years uh and uh, also gary Waite before him uh what is it about mudge anyways that that makes him uh, such a special player on the hardball circuit uh, Damien um, is a tremendous athlete. He um, was a very highly ranked junior in Australia um, in the softball game. Uh, and then he had, I believe, the chronic fatigue syndrome that kind of sidelined him completely for a year or so in his late teens. And he never really returned seriously to, to softball. He moved to, the, to, the North, to North America. He happened to take, have a job at the, uh, as the assistant at the University Club of New York at a time when Gary Waite who was the, the best player on the doubles tour at the time, uh, was the head pro. And uh, Gary taught Damien how to play. The two of them dominated the tour between 2000 and 2007, when Gary, who was in his 40s by then, retired. Damien subsequently um, played a few years with Victor Berg, whom you just mentioned, uh, had a couple of dominant years, uh, 2010 to 2015, with another Australian named Ben Gould. Right. And in the last couple of years, he's been playing with Manik Mathur, who's, uh, who used to you know, start tr at Trinity College and who's um, the head pro at the Racket and Tennis Club, also in New York, just a few blocks away from where Gary is, at, uh, where Damien is at the University Club. Damien, um, has, Damien has, is a big, strong, strapping um, athlete. He's very, he moves beautifully, even though he's now in his early 40s. He's always kind of powered his way to the ball. And he also powers the ball. He basically hits harder than anybody else. Yeah. And in, in hardball doubles, power is, I mean, shot making and everything else is somewhat important, but power is rewarded much more in doubles than it is in either form of singles. And, um, and he's, uh, he's had obviously great partners because obviously great players want to play with him. Yeah. Uh, he's actually, what's also remarked about him is that uh, Gary was a great left wall player and Damien played the right wall for those seven years. Then he played for nine years on the left wall, meaning the backhand side, when he was Victor Berg and Ben Gould's partner. And now he's back on the right wall because Manik Mathur, his current partner, is left-handed. So he was, he's been a dominant player on both walls, which is, which is very unusual. And I guess the reason that he's been so dominant, and he has by far the all-time record for uh, pro doubles tournaments won. I mean, probably more than twice as, more than three times as many as Gary Waite, who was his second, really? was the leading winner before Damien surpassed him, is that he's just such a, a powerful, physical squash athlete. Yeah, I, I, I was just thinking uh, when, when Mudge was uh, paired with uh, with Victor, that must have been a quite a quite a uh, something to watch. I mean, Victor, yeah. we all know what he's like. I mean, he he's a more of a shot maker. Uh, yep. uh, at least on the softball tour he was, but I, I think I've seen him play a few times as a hardball player, and, and it's the same thing. That must have been uh, pretty uh, interesting to see those two uh, paired up. 
they were a very dynamic team. And as you say, Victor's a very, uh, one of the most creative players in the game in terms of the shots he conjures up and, and his ability to pull them off. He also was blazingly fast. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, in his yeah. mind. Incredible. He, was, he was like a roadrunner out there. And, yeah. Uh, and yeah, he and Damien were a very good team. But I will say that um, that was the partnership in which Damien lost more matches than he lost with some of the others. He and Gary Wade had a couple of years when they went undefeated for the whole season. That was also true with Damien and um, and uh, um, and uh, Ben Gould. And and he and Manic lost the first tournament they ever played together, which was in September of 2016, the beginning of last season. And they have not lost a tournament since then. So uh, uh. Um, he he was actually a little more vulnerable the years he was playing with with Victor than he has been with some of the other partners. Yeah, maybe the shot making exposed a, a few things on occasion. Victor could go hot and cold a little bit, and he was—he's a great player to watch when he's on. But um, they were a little more vulnerable. Plus, as good as Damien was on the left wall, he was better on the—he's better on the right wall. That's why he and, and Gary, and now he and Manic are just almost unbeatable. Right now, uh, I remember growing up uh, as a softball player playing nationally in Canada, Gary Waite was number one in the age group above me. And back then, uh, he also played hardball. And, and um, Who was this? I'm sorry. Gary Waite. Yeah. Gary, right. Okay. Yeah, Gary. Yep. And uh, back then, I just recall reading about uh, this guy, Jeff Stanley, an American hardball player who would have been about the same age as Gary. And I think they may have uh, had a bit of a, I'm not sure if they had a rivalry or not, but uh, Whatever happened to Jeff Stanley? Uh, because uh, I think he was a decent player in this day, wasn't he? Absolutely. Jeff and Gary often, which for several years, they played each other in the finals of the junior events. Um, this would have been, uh, I guess, in the early 1980s, probably late 70s, early, yeah, early 80s. Um, uh, Jeff uh, then went on to Princeton. Uh, he was class of 89 at Princeton, and he was the number one player for uh, Princeton uh, during that whole time. He won the U.S. Nationals in 1987. He won the U.S. National Intercollegiates in 1987 and 1988. And he was the best player on the Princeton team that won the postseason six-man uh, intercollegiate championship in 1988. Um, in fact, he played a teammate of his, Keen Butcher, in the final. Jeff then did win uh, the North American Open doubles in 1995. He played on the WPSA Pro Tour near the end of the tour. The tour was starting to fade by the time Jeff graduated. Um, uh, and he was one of the top five players on that tour. Um, uh, and he, you know, after that tour sort of folded and after um, he had, had won the North American Open doubles in 95, um, he, uh, he became an investment banker. He still plays... Um, he still plays and plays well. He and the he and another Princeton player named Bill Ullman uh, won the uh, U.S. National Fifty and Over Doubles Championship just oh, a couple great. of weeks. Okay. So. Okay. So yeah. Jeff was a great player who only briefly went the pro route, and Jeff was in the generation of players who were robbed of a chance to play on the WPSA Hardball Tour because the right. tour ended just as they were about to reach their prime. Right, yeah. He and Gary, I guess Gary missed out on that as well, but had a, a relatively uh, a very, well, he had a very good softball career. Uh, Jonathan Power just overtook him as the highest ever ranked Canadian, uh, obviously. Right, he was number one. And, Gar yeah. and by the way, there was a period where Gary and, J and, uh, and, um, uh, and um, Jonathan Power, uh, they had a bit of a rivalry for a couple of years. Um, oh, yeah. And then got to be too good and Gary was obviously also a bit you know older than uh, than than power and yeah power became the best uh, the number one player in the world yeah now in your opinion I, I read your your uh, a little bit on your piece on uh, the greatest squash rivalries of all time uh, mm -hmm. there, there's quite a, a long list there and which uh, of those would you regard as the greatest uh, rivalry of all time um, I think there was a there was a period in the 1980s when Sharif Khan was still the number one player, but but was starting to lose a little bit, and a very mercurial uh, Canadian named Mike Desaulnier um, was you know was 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 starting to become a great player. Uh, those two 
had a sort of, and let's put it this way, there were many players who, um, who tried to sort of knock Sharif off his pedestal when Sharif was the number one player and displace him as number one. And Sharif was the number one player in, in hardball squash for almost a decade. The player who finally did so was Mike Desaulnier, who became the number one player in 1981-82 um, that season and had been challenging Sharif for maybe a year or two before that. Those three years when the two of them, when Mike was getting, was kept getting, was pushing Sharif harder and harder, um, I thought the, that rivalry over the, those couple of years was the best rivalry that I've personally, you know, witnessed. Um, uh, because there were so many, there were different factors at play. Uh, for one, for one thing, Michael played at an even faster pace than Sharif did. Uh, Michael's the only player I've ever played against who you really felt like he was volleying the ball before you'd finished your follow through. Uh, there was just <laughs> no time. The t- time was just so compressed that there, there was no time to think, or you, it was felt like a goaltender against a two-man power play in hockey. You, you yeah. just were under constant siege. Really, from the moment you walked into the court, he would even walk into the court, and the first warm-up ball he'd hit, he would be hit hard. Um, he he rushed he rushed to the service box to serve after a point. I don't think it was to try to deprive the opponent of time to catch his breath. I just think that his whole his thinking and his action was all happened at an extraordinarily fast pace, and I think that's also part of why he didn't last longer. I think he kind of burned himself out, but. Um, because very shortly after he took over at number one from Sharif, um, he started losing to Mark Talbot, who then became the number one American player. But, um, but for those couple of years, when Mike was challenging Sharif and then drawing even with him and then moving past him, those two had terrific matches. Sharif represented the Khan clan and, and had the whole pride of that, of, you know, that family that, which he was carrying and which he was trying to hold off Michael's challenge against. Um, there was also, there was something. Yeah, the pride, the pride of uh, having that family on, on American soil as well. I said again. The pride of having the Khan clan on American soil and thriving uh, there as well. Absolutely right. The whole family, you know, when his father Hashim moved over from uh, from Pakistan and eventually brought his sons, you're absolutely right. The whole family made the move and and had done so very successfully. But there was something about. Um, even when Sharif was still able to hold Michael off, it was clear that that wasn't going to be for long. And there was something about the inevitability of the Desaulnier impending takeover that really represented, um, it, it, was, it, it was represented something that all of us face, which is sort of the larger, it's sort of an augury of the larger mortality that eventually claims us all. Um, Sharif was as prideful a holder of that number one position as could have existed. And to his credit, when he finally surrendered it, it was with a great amount of class and dignity. But you could yeah. really see this was an intergenerational battle, and the numbers were relentlessly on Michael's side because Michael was over a decade younger. And there was, there was something that had a sociological aspect to the way Mike challenged and eventually displaced Sharif. Now, maybe I'm wrong on this, or maybe I'm uh, out of place uh, by saying it, but do you think, I mean, Sharif obviously had a tremendous personality, and partly because of his personality, maybe Hardball thrived during his uh, era. Do you think perhaps that maybe uh, because Hardball didn't really have that uh, personality per se to to carry the mantle after Sharif uh, uh, lost lost his way, do you think that may have been partly... uh, why the, the the singles game sort of hasn't been what it was? No, I don't, I don't think that was the case. Um, no. uh, there, were, that, there were tremendous personalities on that tour. Mark Talbot spent several years uh, living in uh, a little house that he'd sort of constructed at the back of a, of a truck. He, he, he would actually drive to tournaments, and you could see that this, um, this sort of small house, like a, like a dog house almost, um, on the back of the vehicle that he constructed. And he, had the, early in his career, had sort of long hair. He was a little bit, you know, not a, a hippie, hippie. Figure, but he was, so, he was so much more laid back in his whole personality. You know, he grew up, um, he was born in Ohio, but he mostly grew up in, in the Atlanta area. And there was a certain sort of Southern uh, quietness and calm about him that really 
made made it very surprising to many people because squash is you know most of the squash players are hype, the leading players are hyperactive personalities and play and play and talk and act at that pace. Mark was very different that way, and he really charmed. There, there's a certain gentleness to him as well, which again was a contrast with the determination he showed on court. Um, so people loved Mark and loved watching him play, and, and he was a very engaging personality. Um, and Ned Edwards, who was the number two player a lot of those years behind Mark, who went to Penn and was sort of a product of the classic Marion Cricket Club, Philadelphia, squash area, uh, also ha had a compelling story. He was a diabetic for one thing, and uh, that was a factor a bit in his, in, in his, pl in his playing over the years. Um, that he was sort of a sensitive superstar who had this enormous uh, racket talent, uh, but who somehow sometimes um, got in his own way a little bit before he eventually became a great, great player. Tommy Page, who tragically died uh, as a very young man uh, in his early 40s um, and who battled demons his whole life, was an, was an extraordinary talent. I mean, there, there are few few sights more compelling than watching Tommy dash after a ball and, and he <laughs> just hit the ball beautifully. He was, he was the player, Jahangir Khan has always said that the player who pushed him the hardest and who made him play his best in either hardball or softball was Tommy Page. They had great, great matches. Uh, there was one match in which Tommy was so exhausted um, that he went out, he left the building after the match was over, and he walked about five blocks in the, in the street in New York, not knowing where he was, before a bystander saw, the, saw what was happening and pulled him to safety. I mean, they, they <laughs> the, the, wow. best, the hardest matches Jahangir played on the hardball tour were not against Mark or against Michael or against Sharif. They were against Tommy Page. Uh, and there were a bunch of John Nimick, who later became, who now is the tournament chairperson of the a tournament of champions and who was also one of the best players on the WPSA tour. Um, he was an interesting story as well. He was a Princeton product. That tour did not have a lack of either talent or personalities. I think it was more that, um, that the softball game was just making more and more inroads into North America. And, uh, and it essentially eventually, you know, caused the WPSA to, WPSA tour to fade. Yeah. Yeah, well, it wasn't because, but it wasn't because nobody could could carry Sharif's mantle after Sharif left. That was that was not why it, that happened. Right. Okay. Well, um, Rob, you've been very uh, very generous with your time, and we've been. Uh, I mean, there's so much more we could cover, but I'd like to ask you uh, about your book, Chasing uh, the Lion. Uh, I read a few excerpts. Uh, it's a great. The excerpts that I read are, are great. Uh, I'd like you, if you could. Um, to relive that anecdote of the uh, the classroom fracas between the the faculty member and the militant uh, student, and what what sort of impression it uh, left on you? It made, a big, it made a big impression on me. Um, <laughs> uh, um, this was um, this was ninth grade Latin. I was in my first year at this at this four year you know preparatory boarding school up in southern New Hampshire. And, um, and th those classes, one of the great things about the Exeter educational system is they go on what's called the Harkness system. Uh, Ned Harkness gave, uh, gave a bunch of round and oval tables to the academy, and we would not sit at our own desks facing the teacher or at our own seats facing the teacher. We would, the classes which took place around this round table, almost like people sitting around a dinner table um, having a conversation. And, and uh, Harkness felt, and this is clearly the case, that that lent itself much more to a full exchange among all the students than the, than the normal classroom setting where you've got a teacher up, at the, up by the blackboard, you know, and the, looking at the students who were all at their own individual chairs. Um, and uh, in this class, uh, the, the teacher we're talking about, whose name is David Coffin, he still is alive in his early 90s now. I've stayed in touch with him over the years. He was a real classic New England teacher with a bow tie and, and uh, you know, a very crisp manner about him, very much no nonsense, um, uh, and a, but a very good teacher. There were several uh, black students in that class. The school had sort of was becoming more integrated than it had been in the past. And, and there were several in that class, um, several of whom were a bit militant. This was right when the black power movement was starting to you know, come into focus in the late 1960s, et cetera. And one of them uh, 
had been he had been sort of getting on Mr. Coffin's nerves bit by bit for a couple of weeks. I I was sort of noticing, and I always was wondering if if there'd be an, if there would be any kind of a showdown between them. And in the case of this day, uh, Mr. Coffin asked him to translate a certain passage, and he was having trouble with it. And Mr. Coffin was helping him a little bit, and you could feel the tension starting to grow. And finally, the, the student just tossed the book onto the desk and said, "You know, shove it. Let's get the whole thing." And that was a direct, you know, a really direct, um, direct case of disobedience. And that was something that Mr. Cuff was not going to tolerate. He told the student to pick up the book. Uh, 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 otherwise, he was going to have him thrown out of the academy for direct disobedience. Uh, the, uh, the, the young man uh, refused to do so. They started to move towards each other. As it happens, I was sitting in the seat between where Mr. Coffin was sitting at the head of the table and where the student was. And as they started towards each other, I sort of rolled my seat out of the way. And the other students sort of started to stand up, sort of wondering what was going to happen or if they should intercede. There was a lot of confusion in the room at the time, as well as a great deal of anger between the two of them. And I think a lot of us were afraid that the student was going to beat Mr. Coffin up, but actually Mr. Coffin grabbed him by the shoulders and sort of forced him uh, against the wall, and he sort of won that confrontation and then led the student uh, to, the, uh, to the dean's office. I actually thought he was going to be expelled. Um, it turned out they let him finish out the school year. This, happened, this was late April by then, and there was a certain amount of tension in the days that followed, but the year ended reasonably without incident. Uh, but yeah, that made a real impression on me. Um, I wasn't sure. Uh, I felt a little bit like I'd been in some danger. Um, I felt a little bit like maybe I should have done something to keep them apart. I felt a little bit like a coward, I guess. Uh, but it was a real raw display of, of some of the social and political and personal tensions that were swirling around the, the country at the time, indeed, and as, as well as the academy at the time. So um, I guess at that when when it happened at that time, um, did could you feel was was it more than just the the Latin that he couldn't um, translate? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I think there was resentment. Uh, uh, um, you know, he'd been in this environment, this sort of white white dominated environment. The student had been for that most of the year. Uh, the blacks were starting to get militant in society, and that was filtering its way into the academy. I mean, for, for, for him, that, um, do you remember his name again, uh, the boy's name in question? I do know the boy's name. Do you want me to say what the boy's name is? Uh, yes. Is it necessary? Sorry? No, it's not necessary. No, that boy, uh, the boy, though. Um, what his, was name was, his name was... Uh, no, no, was don't, you don't need to say it. <laughs> um, but I was going to say... Uh, for him at the, at that time, uh, it probably would have been something that, for uh, his, part of his education was to sort of stand up for himself. Uh, well, uh, except that I don't think he was being uh, I don't think he was being hard done by. I think this was his no. fault. Was it his fault? Okay. The most interesting part of all was the reaction of the of the two other black students in the room when this one student, uh, you know, got out of hand. They. You could tell that they were not sure if somehow they were responsible, if you know, for the, for the other black students' conduct, uh, if what they, if, if however they acted would get back to the other black students in the school in a way that would um, hurt their standing. You could tell that they were in a very conflicted situation, maybe more so than the white students in that class as well. Um, but in terms of the Exeter memoir as a whole, um, as I said, as you said, the title is Chasing the Lion, An Unresolved Journey Through the Phillips Exeter Academy. Um, that, um, that school, you know, I subsequently went to Yale and Yale did not make anywhere close before I was, I was four years at both places. Yale is almost an afterthought. It didn't make anywhere close to the impression or the impact on me that the years I did at Exeter had. And, um, the place, both then and even to this day, continues to sort of have its hooks in me in a way that um, is a little bit confusing to me even. And I think I wrote this memoir partly because, um, as it happened, the years I was there, late 60s, early 70s, were, were at a time when, you know, there were so many different issues swirling around America, the, the Black Power Movement, uh, the women's liberation, uh, in fact, Exeter and many of the other all-boys prep schools went co-ed during my time there. Um, okay. Uh, the Vietnam War. There were there was there was a tremendous amount going on in the outside world. And did kind of did the faculty at that time were they uh, were they open to to these new uh, 
to this new way of thinking, this new way of... Uh, well, they, were sort of, they eventually had, they were sort of forced to be open about it eventually. And that's mm -hmm. kind of part of why I wanted to write this is that, first of all, I was trying to come to terms with my own, uh, you know, feeling about the Academy and the fact that um, it, the impact has been so strong and enduring. Um, but secondly, I realized that I was there at this unique time when all, everything was going on in the outside world. And it was sort of fascinating to, to watch the way those factors intruded gradually but inexorably into even the, the sort of, in theory, insulated cocoon of a New England prep school. Um, that school was changed. Some of it was of its own volition. A lot of it was because what was going on in the world and what was going on with the students forced it to change. And that was sort of, in some cases, quite unwillingly. And that was a very interesting process to be part of and to be observed and to have a chance to observe uh, firsthand. Well, I'm definitely, I'm going to go and uh, somehow find a copy of, uh, I think this one's also available online though, isn't it? It was, it was, uh, it was, it was uh, published at a, uh, uh, at Northshire Books, which is um, in, uh, up in Vermont. Um, uh, my site, robdinnerman.com and dinners with one N, R-O-B-D-I-N-E-R-M-A-N.com has excerpts, which I guess you've read some of, and uh, also has a, a, a photo of the book, which if you click on that photo, instructions appear as to how to order it. Okay, so if anyone wants to purchase any of your books, just uh, go to your website, robdinnerman.com, and then That's click correct. on the images of the books. That's correct. Okay. Well, Rob, uh, I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't ask you this final question before we uh, finish our interview. The Yankees, 2018-19, is it their year? Uh, uh, well, it's only 2018. It doesn't become 19 till the season to over. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but um, this could be their year. Uh, they, uh, even in these first couple of games, two of which they won and then they lost yesterday, some of the weaknesses have come out. For one thing, they already have several players who are injured and are on the disabled list. Uh, for another thing, um, although they have great relief pitching, one of their relief pitchers, uh, Dellen Batances, had a very tough time last uh, season at the end, and he was victimized yesterday. He, he for whatever reason, he's a, he's a good pitcher, but he has a mental block about throwing to home plate when he's trying to catch a base runner. And uh -huh. there was a crucial okay. one they let up at the end of the game yesterday. Well, uh, someone stole home, home, right? That's right. And yeah, he yeah. panicked and he threw the ball not only too late, but threw it completely inaccurately, wildly past the catcher. And Toronto had the insurance run they needed. So uh, uh, the Yankees have a lot of players. They've got a lot of power. They also have a lot of players who strike out a lot. Um, Aaron uh, Judge? I think that they may have a good year. I, I'm, not, I'm not yet at all convinced uh, what kind of team they're going to be this year. They were one game from the World Series last year, and they scored a total of one run in the last two games of that series with the Houston Astros. So, you know, they're still prone. They're still as vulnerable as anybody else when they're going against a good pitcher. I think, uh, they just hired, was it uh, Boone, right? To... They hired Aaron Boone. Who, yeah. um, was that a good hire in your estimation? Uh, I think it was a very good hire. Um, but Aaron Boone, of course, was the player who 15 years ago hit the home run that won the, pen, the, the 2003 pennant for them against the Boston Red Sox. Um, and so he, he does have a certain bit of pedigree. But he also seems he was a, he's been a baseball commentator for quite a few of the recent years before taking on this managing job. And he seems to be very uh, thoughtful and insightful. I noticed in his press conference yesterday, he stayed very calm. He didn't throw anybody under the bus, even though it was a very tough game to lose. He defended his pitcher, Batanza. So he's so far, I'm very impressed with him. Um, I, um, I'm surprised they fired Joe Girardi, who did a very good job as a manager all those years. Uh, but I think Boone is going to turn out to be quite a good hire. That's great. Well, uh, all the best for, for the Yankees. Uh, my, my passion for baseball uh, was lost when the Expos uh, uh, folded. So uh, well, that was a while ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I've never really uh, I'm a Canadian. Right. So I've never really uh, embraced the Blue Jays, but uh, they, they've had some good years. Right. So it's been yeah. 25 years since the Blue Jays won their last World Series. Yeah, it's not going to happen again anytime soon, judging I, from the first three games. Okay. Yeah. But uh, Rob, thank you so much uh, for coming on to the podcast. That was fantastic. Uh, all the best with the, uh, the upcoming book uh, uh, that will be released uh, soon, I, I, I'm sure. And, In October. Uh, 
in October. Okay. And uh, thank you again, uh, Rob. It was a great, it was a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed this hour that we spent a great deal. That was great. Thank you so much. Take care. Be well. Cheers. Bye-bye. Well, that's episode 20. Thank you again, uh, Rob Dinnerman, for coming on. Uh, fascinating stuff there uh, for us. And uh, once again, congrats to all the Commonwealth Games uh, medalists on the women's side. Uh, Joelle King, gold. Sarah Jane Perry, silver. Tessney Evans, bronze. And on the men's side, congrats to uh, James Wilstrup, uh, silver to Paul Cole, and bronze to Nafizwan Adnan. Uh, great effort by all of you, and uh, congrats from the In Squash podcast. We'll see you all again very soon. Bye-bye.